picking up where we left off. A Holling Center podcast. Hosted by Michael Carroll. Welcome to Picking Up Where We Left Off. I'm Michael Carroll, Executive Director for the Holling Center for International Dialogue. Food security is a global challenge, with the world experiencing simultaneous epidemics of hunger, obesity, and malnutrition. Compounding matters, global challenges like climate change are increasing the likelihood of low crop yields and aridification of arable land. And even before the pandemic, supply chain problems caused by political instability, poor storage, and a lack of logistical infrastructure prevented food from getting to the people that need it. In 2017, the Holling Center hosted a dialogue conference called The Food Security Factor, Stability, Governance, and Development Choices that looked at the complex set of issues surrounding food security, focusing specifically on the Middle East and North Africa. The MENA region is the largest importer of food in the world, accounting for nearly one-third of global cereal imports. Rising prices in staple foods since 2009 and political instability since 2011, coupled with growing water scarcity and poorly developed environmental and agricultural policies, have all contributed to a growing food crisis. The region contains some of the highest-risk countries for food insecurity, caused in part by conflict, politics, refugee crises, and decades of agricultural mismanagement. Since the Dialogue Conference in 2017, the situation in the region has only worsened due to the severe supply chain disruptions caused by the pandemic. Spikes in global inflation and food prices continue to put basic food necessities further out of reach for many. Sudden crises, even those far away, can turn a food-secure population into an insecure population in a matter of days. These challenges are not just limited to the MENA region. They're global. And food security is not just a challenge for national governments, but also for localities, households, and individuals as well. So to pick up where we left off on the challenges of food security, we are pleased to welcome back two participants from our 2017 dialogue. Andy Fisher is the author of Big Hunger, a book about the hunger industrial complex, published by MIT Press in 2017. He co-founded and led the Primary American Food Systems Alliance, the Community Food Security Coalition, and he is currently based in Oregon in the United States. Dr. Torki Adarashid is a businessman, author, academic, and the founder of CEO Golden Grass Inc., an agriculture and contracting company based in Saudi Arabia. He is an adjunct professor at the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences in the Department of Agricultural and Biosystems Engineering at the University of Arizona. Dr. Al-Rashid is the author of more than a half dozen books. His most recent publication is Public Governance and Strategic Management Capabilities, Public Governance in the Gulf States. Gentlemen, thank you both for participating in today's program. So to, to start off, I'd like to explain to the audience some of the general principles about food security. When we use the term food security, what are we really talking about? Well, as we know, food security, there is over 20 definitions for it, which is, are widely recognized. So I'll put the food security, food security definition, the one I go by, which is made by the FAO. Food security means that food is available at all time, that all person have the mean of access to it. That is nutritionally 
adequate in terms of quality, quantities, and variety, and that is acceptable within the giving culture. So within that framework, we're not talking about here that is, you have to produce everything you own. I mean, you, 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 you use, but it is available to your people. But let's not keep forgetting, you know, food is politics. If we analyze, if we take a sample of wheat and we analyze it, we will find 12% of that grain is protein. 88% of it is politics. I remember, I have to, <laughs> I know you would <laughs> like that one there. <laughs> I know I will get you to laugh. Um, it seems like there's, you know, we're talking about food security, perhaps you've been talking about it at a national level, you know, in terms of whether there's enough food um, within a country's borders, either production or, or uh, that it could acquire through trade to meet its, its population's need. But I think there's, I'd like to also, I don't know if you're going to go in this direction or not, but I'd also like to talk a little bit about household food security. Actually, Andy, that's where the trend direction I was actually heading towards next is that, you know, we're obviously talking a lot about nations and governments here. Um, but there are a lot of other actors as well, you know, that in especially on local level, especially within households, you know, there, there is a broader definition of food security here. So that's where I'd actually like to take the conversation Station next. So, if you'd like to, to comment on on that on that, because I know you've worked on many projects that look at the smaller scale, that look at the household level, that look at the local level, and would love to get some commentary on it. Yeah, I just want to emphasize that you know part of the problems with food with household food insecurity in in places like the MENA region is you know is essentially poverty related. It's essentially the the low income levels of of the population vis-a-vis -vis the cost of food. And obviously that intersects with trade and intersects with the, with the subsidies that governments provide to keep food costs low. Um, and those are, you know, essentially a safety net of sorts. But, you know, I think if, if we're trying to really improve the, the food security levels of households, yes, you have to get food in the country and yes, there's trade issues and all that. There's those macro issues, but there's also micro issues. Of, of economic development that have to happen at that level to bring up the standards of living of people. Um, and urban agriculture, as Turkey said, is, is one mechanism. You know, there's the growth of, of, at least here in the U.S., there's a the growth of, of lots of projects that are increasing access to food, um, especially healthy food, as we see nutrition transition um, and the growth of diet-related diseases such as diabetes and obesity and in many countries such as Egypt, um, in developing countries such as Egypt, but you're also, um, but you're also seeing, you know, job training. You're seeing other programs that recognize the centrality of food as a building block for a society, for the for society's economy, and using that, using the people's knowledge of production, of distribution, of cooking, et cetera, et cetera, uh, whether it's in the informal or formal sector, to, to provide income for folks so that they can improve their standard of living and become more food secure. Turkey, could you add a, a, a MENA region perspective to that? Because there are obviously a lot of household level and smaller scale level uh, food insecurity issues there as well. Well, I am um, putting here, which is my book, uh, Agriculture Development Strategy, uh, the role of agriculture to enhance food security, alleviate poverty, and promote economic growth. 
So my argument is uh, agriculture is the cheapest, most effective way to uh, enhance the national securities. There is Saudi Arabia is one of the largest uh, donors worldwide. And I'm trying to influence that some small amount of money of this donation or these supports or whatever you call it, it goes into social agriculture. Uh, I'll give you an example. In Lebanon, there is 1,200 villages. Uh, my argument, if we allocate two to $300,000 per village in, uh, for Lebanon, uh, that the impact will be huge. You don't just look at it from economical point of view. You look at it from a 360 degrees. You look at it from poverty. You look at it from improving the health of the society. You look at it from a national security. You look at it from urbanization. Because when all these village people, they move into the city, and our city already now is ballooned, mushroomed, whatever word you want to use, they are extremely overpopulated. And then you get, what do you get with that? For the last thousands of years, we know that. The symptom is there is a poverty built, which is, will be uh, a good fertile area for, they don't have clean water, they don't have a uh, sewer system, they don't have a good medical health, and then you will have a lot of problem with other area, which is they have to go for illegal. To that, I, I, want, I agree with you completely, Turkey. I think you made a really, really great point about the importance of rural development in this issue. You know, thanks to the Holland Center, we had the opportunity to bring some Tunisian colleagues from the Department of Agriculture and Education, the World Food Program, to the U.S., to Oregon, uh, to meet with them to talk about our farm-to-school work, because uh, they're developing with the World Food Program, the Homegrown School Lunch Program. And we learned about, and we, then we got to go to Tunisia to to, to see a little bit of their work. But the one thing that struck me was a project that the Department of Agriculture there is doing, the Ministry of Agriculture, around, uh, around um, food production for, for the school lunch program. And they were doing it with a group of women um, that they were trying to, to improve the economic status of those individuals. And they recognized that they needed to organize those women into kind of a bit of a collective. Um, and I think, you know, there's two points here. One is the importance of, you know, of that rural development, the importance of working with, with women as an economic development strategy uh, for improving gender equality. But also, I think the one piece that, that Dr. Rashid left out was around civil society as part of that stool, um, the importance of building up those democratic institutions um, as a tool for not only you know, being able to implement those projects and more effectively and enhance community development, but also as a political strategy for, you know, for, for holding the government accountable and holding uh, corporations accountable as well. I'd like to highlight a point that Andy was saying, and, and you were following on, uh, Turkey, about, you know, the importance of civil society in this. And, and I'll, I'll throw in my own anecdote, living in Boston at the start of the pandemic, which was a city that was hit pretty hard pretty early. And we, we even discussed back in the dialogue that you could go from food secure to food insecure at a lightning fast pace. 
And there's almost two ways to deal with food, in, food insecurity. There's the long-term stuff, which is exactly what we're talking about here in terms of research projects, in terms of uh, uh, initiatives, you know, bureaucratic as some of them may be. But there's also these kind of rapid response necessities as well when you go from a rapid food secure to food insecure. And in March of 2020, the first time in my life, I experienced this as well, where I knew I was going to be okay. But when I'd go to the supermarket, there was it was basically empty. And part of that was because of companies here in the United States using the just-in-time model, which was great for efficiency, but basically gave us absolutely no resiliency in, in some of our Northeastern cities at the beginning. So I'd go into a grocery store, masked up, you know, afraid of what I was going, what was going to happen to me. And it was almost worthless to go there standing outside in lines for an hour and a half. And then going in there to find that, you know, the only thing left was ready whip. Um, so, you know, I, I think it was important because one of the things that happened, the rapid response things that happened were you had a bureaucratic loophole removed, which was the FDA suspending uh, food labeling requirements in the U S which allowed restaurants to sell their bike bulk items. And for two months, basically, the only way I could get wheat, flour, eggs, milk, basic staples was to actually go to a neighborhood restaurant that was now selling them to me. Part of that civil community fabric of restaurants that we all know and love that are local. Uh, and it helped some of those restaurants get through those early months. So I think really civil society is an important factor beyond the government step. And, and I appreciate that both of you brought this up because I experienced it personally. Uh, how important it, that is. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be nonprofit organizations that are, you know, registered under the government. I think we saw just using that example, Michael, here in here in, in Portland, we saw, you know, there was a huge shortage of toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, and we saw that people were posting on social media, hey, I've got 30 roles, I'm happy to share with somebody. So you saw those kind of community networks of colleagues and friends and neighbors who were built, who were working together uh, and making this, the community much more resilient, as you noted. So I think it's a really, really good point. I'd like to pivot now, if I may, from matters of local resiliency to a global factor in the food security challenge, and that's climate change. The last seven years have been the warmest on record. We've seen severe droughts, floods, fires, even changes to the growing cycles. How is climate factoring into discussions on the food security challenge, especially when we look into the longer term? I, would, I mean, in general, I think you, 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 you made a, a good case for the increasing severity of, climate, of the climate crisis. And the latest report that came out of was IPES indicated, you know, again, the shrinking window we have to address um, this issue. I mean, I, you know, and obviously, you know, the MENA region is highly sensitive to, to drought. It's, you know, an arid, an arid situation over there. And it's, you know, again, in the U S it's here on the West, I'm on the West coast of the U S it's a similar thing. What the, the climate scientists are talking about uh, the severe drought in the, in this part of the country is not just a drought, but as a ridification. So we're seeing those, those changes play out everywhere. I mean, the, the hopefulness of what's happening in the in the Ukraine right now is that that will compel um, the West to move, you know, faster towards energy sovereignty or not energy sovereignty to, to alternative fuels. I guess we'd better way to putting that, uh, which you know potentially could reduce the severity of the crisis. But we're already well into it. So, I 
am not that hopeful that the the climate, food and water situation is gonna is gonna improve. I think it's I think it's really only gonna worsen and it's gonna cause more price shocks as we see the impacts on global agriculture to which places like in the Middle East, to countries that are having to buy their their grain on the on the open market, and you're going to see increased um, higher prices, and and it's going to have some severe impacts on national economies and on food security. I think the major challenges for food security uh, and to feed those seven billion peoples very soon we're going to reach it is water. I mean. If you look at those pivots, those center pivots, it requires about 1,500 gallons per minute. So 1,500 gallons per minute, that basically what uh, average Americans or Saudis use in a whole month. So what's one minute those center pivots require to grow a wheat is um, it require for one month for a human being. If we look at the one kilos of uh, forage, whatever whatever forage you want, whether alfalfa or whatever it is, it require sixteen thousand liters of uh, water. So one kilos of those alfalfa, it require. 16,000. Wheat require 1,000 liters of water. So there isn't available uh, waters anymore. If we look at the, um, I don't know whether I will say it right, but the Ogala Ogala, uh, aquifer, which goes all the way from South uh, Dakota all the way to Texas, those water wells are drying up extremely fast because we cannot produce enough uh, water to to sustain what we're doing. We have to go into not any more tons per hectares or tons per acre or a bushel of of acres. No, we will go by crops per drops. How much water is required? And those are the things which is, uh, you could see more and more uh, of water problem. So right now, it's when you buy land, when you go invest, really, you're not really buying land. You're not really buying the area. You are buying the right of water. I know. I absolutely agree. There's a, there's a, you know, I I work in California and in the agricultural sector and, you know, the drought there is, is terrible. I mean, and it's, it's causing farmers to rip out thousands of acres of almond trees in particular, are very lucrative but we're very thirsty there's also i mean i think don't, don't the saudis own land in in the desert in arizona or in california to, to grow alfalfa and ship back to the dairy industry i mean there's that there's a lot of irrational uses of water that are that are based in in water rights as as uh, as you said yes i'm part i'm part of that investment and uh you know, it's that's one of the area which is Saudi Arabia. We decided to go and to import alfalfa. Uh, we went to Pittsburgh, uh, which is just on the border between Arizona and California. And that area 
have no right issues of water. They don't have no restriction. So we invested tens of millions of dollars in that area, and the area, it just boomed basically, and it went, you know, very modern, and everything is very well. But then, if you, if you search on the net, you will see thousands of anti-Saudi investment. You will not see a good, one single article good about it. And they all said, the Saudi are stealing our water. Hey guys, when we harvested those alfalfa or those forage, we let it in the ground so it will evaporate because you cannot hold water. We need it to be dry, not with water. But with all this extreme negative uh, impact and uh, talk about it, that shows what kind of a risk. If you remember in 2017, when we talked about agriculture investment, agriculture investment is a very risky business, whether you are in the US, whether you are in Mexico, whether you are in, in uh, Ethiopia or in Sudan, because it needs a very clear cut and you need to get involved all the stakeholders. You need to have some kind of a What kind of a law do we talk about? Are we talking about the international law, the local law? And it is extremely difficult, those agriculture investment. It doesn't matter what kind of country are you in. Farming is, is inherently a very risky business. I mean, a lot of farmers are going out of business right and left out here. Uh, so, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a challenging environment. I mean, well, on, the, on that note, uh, we're coming uh, at the edge of our time here. So I wonder if uh, either one of you uh, would like to add some parting thoughts uh, for the audience. I think, you know, that it's, it's a very complex equation. Uh, as Turkey has mentioned multiple times, you know, it's wheat is 12% protein and 88% politics. And he's, he's absolutely right. I think politics and democracy are at the heart of this issue. It's much more than, than the, it is, it's the mechanics of production and, and the interface with the environment, but it's also uh, a, a very uh, strong political interface as well. Uh, that overlays on these issues. And if we're going to, you know, move towards greater food security in this region, as well as many other developing regions, you know, we're going to need uh, a changing politics, both in the international order and within, within uh, individual countries. Well, I thank again, all the audience and uh, for inviting me to participate on such a very delicate subject and very vital subject. We have to recognize that food security is fundamental to mankind, to Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia have started the national security, uh, which is a strategic necessities. Uh, I think one likely impact of COVID-19 is that Saudi will want to boost its own local production of food, assure greater self-sufficiency in some essential item, and to utilize local agriculture uh, technology uh, sector. We have to remember there is no food security without peace and no peace without food security. We are all in one boat. We're gonna reach seven and a half billion people very soon. There is a three, we have to look at it with a holistical point of view, a 360 degrees the indigenous plant, the indigenous animal, urban farming, 
uh, international international uh, purchasing uh, all the above we need uh, increase our storage facilities all the above in order to meet those challenges my thanks to both of you gentlemen for joining us today and for speaking with the audience and i'd like to uh, welcome you back to future hollings programs and to continue this discussion uh, going forward the Hollings Center for International Dialogue is a nonprofit, non governmental organization dedicated to fostering dialogue between the United States and countries with predominantly Muslim populations around the world. In pursuit of this mission, the Hollings Center convenes dialogue conferences that generate new thinking on important international issues and deepen channels of communication across opinion leaders and experts. To learn more, go to HollingsCenter.org.